Hello, everyone. My name is Natalie Turvey. I'm president and executive director of the Canadian <clears throat> Journalism Foundation, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's special event on climate solutions reporting. Thank you for joining us for this important conversation on one of the defining issues of our time. In advance of COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference taking place next week, our guests today will share their perspectives on the role that climate solutions journalism has to play in responding to this global crisis. We're grateful for the generosity of our special event sponsor, Intact Financial Corporation, for making today's event possible. This year, the CJF partnered with Intact to launch a new Climate Solutions Reporting Award that recognizes excellence in reporting on what is being done to address the impact and threat of climate change, including the policies, practices, and people that could potentially be part of the solution. It is my pleasure to welcome Charles Brindamore, CEO of Intact, to say a few words about today's event. Well, thank you, Natalie. I'm very pleased to be with you. I've been uh, speaking with uh, many stakeholders in society in the last decade about uh, solutions to climate change. And I'm so thrilled to be uh, with your group today because you're such an important force in shaping where society is going. Not a day goes by without another story of severe weather in some part of the world. The climate crisis, as you know, is not pending, it's here. Uh, last year, natural disasters displaced more than 30 million people globally. That's three out of four refugees are actually climate refugees. The scale of the crisis is undeniable, and it extends very deep in all layers of society. It also extends to critical infrastructure like electricity, water, food and supply chain, the oxygen of our communities, and uh, the economy. In other words, climate change isn't just about the environment. It's social, it's economic, it's security, and obviously it's political. You know, there are solutions uh, to climate change and we've advocated a number of them over the last decade. The tragedy is that we're not short on solutions. The key issue is courage, it's discipline, its focus and its action. And that's where I think you have a very powerful role to play to galvanize society. Governments also have a powerful role to play in enabling and supporting the implementation of these solutions to help the society move the needle on climate. But solving the climate crisis doesn't just fall to government. It requires an all of society approach that includes NGOs, businesses and citizens, broadly speaking. As we speak, you know, final preparations are taking place to prepare COP26. That'll take place in Glasgow next week. Uh, it is, from my perspective, one of the most important decision point to keep climate change under control. We're leaders next week, tens of thousands of negotiators, government representative, businesses and citizens will try to create some traction. We'll try to increase cooperation and push on some of these solutions that will help society make um, a better world. Now, the transition to net zero, uh, clearly very important uh, for Canada in particular, and the ongoing consequences of climate change will affect how people live, 
for decades to come. It is the deeper trend of the century. And you have a unique, in my mind, and critical role to play in socializing solutions and galvanizing action. We need to talk more about the solutions themselves, not just about the problems. And I think this is where you can move the needle. You're the storytellers of our age, and we need your help to urgently tell the human and evidence-based stories that will help catalyze discussions at all levels of society into concrete actions. Actions that can help society adapt to the effects of extreme weather and remain resilient. The issue is serious, but I'm optimistic. We have the ideas, we have the solutions. What we need is courage, intensity, focus, that'll turn into action. And Natalie, on that, I'll pass the baton back to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charles. Now on to our program. A reminder that today's discussion is an hour long and you can submit questions for our speakers at any time via the tab on your screen. And if you'd like to tweet about today's event, our hashtag is journalism matters. I am thrilled to introduce our panel today. Joining us from Montreal, Mike D'Souza is Managing Editor at The Narwhal. In BC, we have Linda Solomon-Wood, Founder and Editor of Canada's National Observer. Also in BC is Laura Lynch, host of CBC's What on Earth and the recipient of the CJF's inaugural Climate Solutions Reporting Award. From Waterloo, Blair Feltmate joins us. He's a climatologist and professor at the University of Waterloo and head of the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation. And in London, please welcome Jonathan Watts, Global Climate Editor at The Guardian. We are honored to have them with us today to share their insights. You're in great hands leading this conversation. Please welcome Fatima Syed, a tour de force in journalism and a climate reporter at The Narwhal. Thank you so much, Natalie, and hello panelists, and hello to everyone uh, watching. Uh, it's a very exciting uh, conversation we're all about to be a part of. Um, and I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to go straight into questions so we can learn from these great journalists who I'm all a big fan of. Um, so I, I want to start, uh, I want to go back to basics, just because I think we don't often get an opportunity to reflect on, on what exactly it is we're doing. So I want to start by asking all of you, how do you define climate reporting and, and why do you believe it needs to shift towards solutions? And I'm going to start with my hero, Jonathan Watts. <laughs> Wow, thank you for that kind um, introduction, Fatima. Um, and great to be on this panel with you all. Um, what is climate journalism? Um, I've come to believe it's everything. Um, I, I think the wider the definition, the better, uh, because this is not just another story. I can't emphasize that more. This isn't even just another theme. It's not just business and or science, it's not on a par with those. It, it supersedes absolutely everything because the climate um, touches on all of our behavior, um, uh, human behavior, as, as we've just heard. Um, and also it interacts so much with other species um, and other forms of life on earth. We, we tend to think um, of, of the climate story and the biodiversity story, the nature story is almost two different things, but they are so deeply interconnected that I think we, we have to 
um, uh, approach them together. We need to look at everything in a much more holistic way. After all, the, the trees, the plants, the plankton, they regulate the temperature of the earth. They regulate the contents of the atmosphere. Um, so, yes, I, I think the, the key for me is to break out of the environment ghetto. We are specialists. Sometimes we're kind of put off in the environment desk if we're journalists or, we, or shoved off into the environment ministry if you're in a government and then happily ignored, like the powers that be can say, oh, we've done something. We have an environment desk. We've done something. We have an environment ministry. But if you don't give any power, it, nothing changes. So I think it's, it's really important uh, that we try to convince everyone that it, the environment and climate is not just a subject. It's a prism. It's a prism to look at mm. everything, to reevaluate everything. Mike, you've been covering this beat since uh, Stephen Harper's days uh, here in Canada. How has the beat evolved for you and how do you perceive it uh, today? Yeah, so uh, thanks, Fatima. First, I agree with um, with Jonathan that um, integrating it into multiple multiple aspects of uh, what we cover as newsrooms is part of it. And that that is something that I am starting to see shift um, that more and more newsrooms like uh, over the summer, for example, some of, some of the coverage that we saw coming out of Western Canada uh, related to, to the deadly heat waves and, and, and wildfires, we were seeing more of the sorts of coverage that links these uh, disasters, these tragedies to the climate crisis. Whereas when I started um, really as a dedicated climate policy reporter uh, 15 years ago, um, it was sort of a ghetto. It was in a silo in the newsroom. So, um, you know, happy to see that some of this is starting to expand, but there is a lot more work to do. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Linda, you you started uh, Canada's National Observer um, to cover this beat better. Um, how have you seen the beat evolve and, and how do you define it today? That's a great question, Fatima. Um, I think, you know, when I think about this beat and I think about, you know, the shift kind of from hardcore investigative reporting that we've made to really focusing, doubling down on solutions. For me, it gets down to like, you know, there are such dire predictions for what's going on with global warming in the world today. And, you know, I think often about it's like being on an airplane, you know, and if the plane is going down, am I going to sit there and, you know, be immobilized or be in, you know, total terror? Or am I going to get up and try to, you know, go up front, and get into the cabin and help guide the plane back on course? And I think as journalists, that really is our job more and more to, you know, come in with the solutions and, you know, there's just a massive rush now, you know, to solving the climate crisis. And I think we need to be right there on the forefront reporting on that. Laura, you've started a podcast uh, about this in an era where there are lots of podcasts and you're trying to tell climate stories through a different medium. Um, how are you defining it in, in your head and how are you approaching climate stories today? Well, just, just start by saying, Pratima, that, uh, that I actually, my very first job at the CBC, when I was a very young reporter, I covered the environment out here in BC. And at that time, the environment consisted largely of land use, still does, issues, battles around forests. Um, so I certainly was aware of it back then. 
now um, the program that, that it's also a radio program and a podcast. So we have two different spaces um, for people to listen to it. Uh, it was generally conceived of by me as a program that pointed exclusively toward climate solutions. Um, and it was, we were very conscious of that from the beginning because while we wanted people to, to learn about what was happening around them, we also wanted them to learn that there were things that were happening in the world to try to address them. And we take a very broad brush to this. It, it is not um, science only. It is, is the is the legal system. It's the arts. There are all sorts of ways to address what is going on with climate and what the potential solutions are. And uh, as, um, this, this sense that the climate is a silo, um, it's disappearing, it's melting away. Um, I wish there was more daily coverage of it on the CBC, but it is growing. And you can bet behind the scenes, I'm pushing harder and harder to have that happen. I will see a burst of it around COP26, but more and more, I think you'll see it become a part of the, the reporting that, that, that we do every day. And, and I welcome that. I welcome everybody to jump into the pool with us, no matter how warm the pool is getting, and start swimming because people need to know as much as possible. There's some apt climate metaphors in your answer, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, Blair, you're on the other end of the spectrum. You're a climate expert. Um, how, how do you perceive uh, climate reporting and, and why do you think it needs to shift more towards solutions? I would say over the period of the last uh, maybe 10 or 12 years or so, for, for if you went back 10 years ago up to maybe two years ago, almost all of, of the discussion in the media about climate change was on uh, either um, describing the, form, the, the expression of extreme weather risk, whether floods, fires, hailstorms, windstorms, whatever it might be. And then in terms of solutions, it was disproportionately on the end of the equation of mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, which, which was very good. Uh, it's only been in about the last two years, and, and by the way, with exceptions, by the way, I'm just as a general trend, it's only been within the last, I, I would find about, say about two years, that we've really got legs in reference to reporting on uh, talking about adaptation. What do we do to actually adapt to the extreme weather risk that's on the ground today and the greater risk that's coming for sure? You know, we're not going backwards on climate change. Climate change is a done deal. It's here to stay, period. We can work to slow down the rate of climate change, but we're not going backwards. So we need to adapt to extreme weather risks, the floods, the fires, extreme heat, sea level rise, et cetera, uh, rapidly. We're doing a pretty good job in that area. The problem is, and Charles made a little bit of reference to it, we, we know what the problems are. And in many regards, we know what the solutions are. The problem is we're not mobilizing the solutions that we know to be practical, meaningful, and cost-effective. We don't have enough sense of urgency right now around the climate file, believe it or not, at least in my opinion, to really drive behavior in the direction of putting the solutions on the ground in the time we need them. Time is not a luxury, and uh, I believe the world still, despite all the coverage on COP and everything else, uh, I don't believe the world really has the, the, the true sense of urgency around this file that that's necessary. Does anyone want to jump in here and respond to anything Blair said? I would. Um, I think that's really interesting, Blair. And, you know, like it reminds me of um, some polling that I read recently that said that most Canadians are not even sure what the relationship is between fossil fuels and global warming. 
you know, and, and, and when I see stuff like that, I'm just really aware of how much work we have to do just in basic education of the public. And as you said really well, time is of the essence. So, you know, I really see that as one of, as a role of journalism and certainly of National Observer to kind of provide that educational explainer journalism. No, maybe if I could add very briefly, just one, one quick point. Not too long ago, I was giving a, a talk somewhere to an audience of, I don't know, three or 400 people something like on climate change adaptation and so forth. And it was talking about retaining and restoring natural infrastructure to amongst other things, mitigate flood risk. You leave forest fields, wetlands on the landscape, it gives water a place to go when the big storms hit and discharges downstream slowly so you don't get disproportionate flooding. And I was kind of describing that whole process. But then I said also the ancillary benefits are that it also supports uh, enhancement or retention of biodiversity in and of itself as being a desired outcome. And I could see quizzical looks on the part of people in the audience, and I couldn't quite figure out what the problem was until I realized I hadn't defined biodiversity. It didn't. It was a term that just didn't mean a lot to a, to a heck of a lot of people sitting there that, that probably from you know, all of us on this call right now, it's, it's something that, you know, it's part of our everyday le lexicon or vocabulary. But Sometimes I think we, we have to step back and make sure that when we profile these challenges that we're putting in straightforward terms that anybody can relate to, even if they don't, under, you know, to the, for those who don't study it every day. Well, this is, it's interesting you bring this up, Blair, right? Because one of the criticisms I get a lot as a climate reporter is how do you actually strike a balance between, you know, being blunt and, and to the point about the science and severity of the climate crisis, which as we learned from the last IPCC report, uh, you know, many of the impacts are irreversible versus the things people are doing to tackle it in good ways and bad ways um, versus actually educating people about this complicated, multifaceted issue. And I wonder if the editors in the, in the room today, in the virtual room today can, can sort of walk us through the approach they take um, to striking that balance. Um, John, you've been doing this for a while and, and you've really helped shape the Guardian's coverage on this, you know, looking at everything from vocabulary to framing. Um, how are those conversations in your editorial um, rooms going? Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I heartily agree with just about everything that's been said so far, which is kind of boring. Sorry, it'd be nice if we had a fight. <laughs> Um, but that's part of the problem is that the media is sort of so geared towards having a nice dramatic fight, um, that, mm. that we have false mm. balance. That's a big problem, uh, that we've got rid of. I think we, one of the first things I tried to do was just say, look, the science is decided now. Let's stop with this nonsense, uh, about, you know, how close is the connection? How sure is the connection? I think most news organizations are, are in the same place. So, Get rid of that uh, should definitely be the first thing. Then this, this question of language, uh, this is absolutely essential. If we're going to break out of the ghetto uh, and stop talking amongst ourselves and communicate with a wider audience, um, we need a language to do that. And we need, uh, we need a language that conveys the urgency of the situation. Um, so exactly, words like biodiversity, uh, that just, that's, that's us talking to us. Um, we need to sort of say nature or natural life support systems. These kind of words really have urgency. And we don't need, we, you know, we had a big meeting about this uh, three years ago and, and three, four years, three years ago, um, where we, the, the environment team 
persuaded the editor, Kath Viner, who's, who's you know, it's, she's very keen about all this stuff, so she's helped a lot, gathered together all the editors of the other desks, and we just had a big meeting about what more we can do. And this was a kind of like a evangelizing, just trying to get everybody else engaged and trying to get them excited about the language. Because a lot of the other desks just could say, you ask them why they don't like climate coverage. It's oh, too many gigatons and too many terms that people don't understand. And so there's that side of language, making it simple, making it appeal on, a, on an emotional level, as well as, of course, cold, hard facts have to be at the bottom of everything. But then you've got to appeal on an emotional level. And then, and then let's have language that conveys the urgency of the situation. So, you know, climate change. What does that mean? Duh, of course the climate changes. But if we have climate crisis, climate disruption, uh, we use these kinds of terms much more, unless it's a specific science paper that, where you have to use the term they use. Um, and instead of uh, global warming, which sounds kind of nice, especially if you live in a cold, miserable country like Britain, we, 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 we use global heating. Um, and I, I, I proposed this um, at, at one of the cops in Katowice in Poland to a Met Office guy said, how about if we call it global heating? Is that wrong? Is that right? And the response of this scientist, a very senior scientist, was, no, that's actually a very accurate way of describing what is happening. So from now, you know, now... Uh, we talked about this amongst the staff, and now we, we talk about global heating instead of global warming. I mean, there's a million other things to do, but it, I think it's all about being more assertive, not being content with being in our silo, breaking out and, and evangelizing, colonizing, call it what you want, but just trying to uh, get out into the newsroom and get everyone involved. Laura, maybe you can give us an example. Can you walk us through sort of the editorial approach you take to climate stories? Like, how do you pick the story, the voices? What considerations do you make? Sure. I just would, would want to say, I know that, that you use that word um, uh, advisedly, but that colonizing is not a word we would use in Canada to talk about any of this discussion. In fact, part of what we need to do is decolonize even the, even the discussion around climate change is especially important because I will just I will just take that back because okay. part of it is decolonizing our mind I think there's some horrible English DNA in me that just got that term out but yes very inappropriate you're quite right um in, in any event um we we have the added uh challenge um of speaking to people and being in their ears so it, it, because it's so transient, it's to me that much more important to speak plainly, to, to try to get away from the jargon. Um, and I find, I find myself going through scripts every week you know, with the NDCs and wiping that out and putting in the, the, the words that really matter and the words that, that, that are meaningful to listeners who may not know anything about this. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, we use climate crisis quite, quite freely on the show, climate emergency. Um, but we still have not officially changed within the CBC uh, the phrase climate change, despite my persistent lobbying efforts. I will get there. Um, every week um, when we sit down to choose a, a topic, we, we deliberately are looking for what is happening with what the problem is specifically, um, the effect it's having on real people, human beings, trying to get what we call the heartbeat of the matter so that that people can understand it at, at a, a hopefully a more visceral level about why this actually matters rather than talking about it um, in a purely scientific or an academic way. 
and, and then we move on to the potential solution. We don't, we try to scrutinize the solution to not just let them lay it out there, to challenge them about it so, so that the listener can actually have a chance to think about that and, and, and think about whether they think that is something that, that is going to work. Um, judging by the, the response we get, it, it seems to be going quite well. We, we took a long, uh, from the very beginning, we decided that there was no room in our program for any kind of a debate about whether this was happening or not, or whether it was human caused or not. It's just there and we're dealing with it. And um, we, we get some mail and some phone calls and pushback sometimes, but um, mostly from Alberta, um, but um, not really very much anymore. I, I, I think that, that that just, it really isn't part of the realistic conversation these days. Mike, how has your approach uh, to a climate story uh, changed uh, today? What kind of considerations are you taking? Um, I, I think like reaching out um, to, to try to identify the directly affected um, people on, on the front lines is, is, is one of the things that, you know, putting, putting a face to that story, um, it, it, it's not an easy thing to do um, because we have to build, build our capacity to, to, to build relationships, build trust in, in communities that have for a long time not been adequately represented in, in, in the media, uh, whether, whether they're, um, you know, in, in, in communities of, of people of color, um, of uh, uh, in, Indigenous First Nations, um, we have not done a terrific job of uh, going, uh, engaging with these, these communities, telling their stories and, 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 and in a respectful uh, way and, and, and having a conversation with them, um, talking with them, not, not just to them. So that's, that's one thing that I think, uh, you know, we like personally, I, I have started to, to shift in, in, in my own approach. I think, you know, when I started diversity um, in, in the media, I must confess, like I didn't do a good job of, of, of representing. I mean, it's ironic coming from a person of color, um, but the voices that were there that, that I could interview at the time, they were predominantly um, monolithic or, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of diversity. So this is something that I'm, I, you know, have become more sensitive to and, and, and try to make an effort. And sometimes we have to slow down stories um, if we haven't struck that right chord and gotten that diversity and gotten all the perspectives. So, you know, we won't rush to publish something if we haven't truly engaged with all the, all the communities. Now, I wanted to add one thing in terms of solutions reporting that I think, um, you know, I see it in some of the climate and environment reporting um, throughout the world. And in some ways, uh, journalists do it well. I think it's a weakness in Canada right now in terms of one aspect of the problem. And that is who is trying to stop action from happening? Who is, who is having the conversations with government to slow down, delay, um, or, or, or just stop progress and the solutions from being implemented. So that is part of the problem where we have to look at, we have to look for solutions of who, who has been speaking out, who is lobbying, um, what kind of relationship do they have with government? I mean, you know, for years, I, I did some of this reporting, um, with, with um, you know, one of my, one of my first jobs with, with Can West and Post Media. I recall, when there were layoffs, when I when I lost my job in 
or one of the, one of the many times and you know that's another issue with journalism in terms of job cuts but there was concerns raised by by people in 2014 oh is post media or is can west deciding not to cover climate change or not to look at the issue and and that was the wrong question because the issue was how is it that there were so there was so little coverage in the Canadian media landscape um, of this issue that it could be so noticed when when a single person um, disappears or um, you know a decision like that happens? So um, we have to do a better job in Canada as a whole to focus on this issue of of what is behind. Um, what is behind delays in, in taking action. It's not just about implementing the solutions because as everyone has correctly noted, we know what these solutions are. So we have to figure out what is it that is stopping governments from, from implementing these decisions and making the right decisions. Linda, how has your editorial process or considerations changed over the years as you're shifting more and more towards solutions? Well, um, for one thing, you know, um, the daily editorial decisions at National Observer are really managed by Adrian Tanner, who's our managing editor. And so, you know, I am really back in much more of a role of guiding kind of the overall direction we're going. And I would say a shift that's happened for me from, you know, the early years, like when I was just doing like Vancouver Observer and covering pipelines, and then that evolved into the National Observer, and we were, you know, at that point shifting to really covering climate um, and under a lot of kind of pushback and attack as an organization that focused on climate. And, you know, at that time, I was much more reluctant to um, come out really boldly with how I really felt about it and um, really, you know, let the coverage really boldly come from that place, which for me is that this is a very, very serious emergency and that, you know, I'm devoting my life to this really because I think that journalism can play such a powerful role in waking people up to the emergency, empowering them with tools to react to the emergency and hopefully, you know, coming to a place where, you know, the world really has more stability and health and not just for human beings, but also for, you know, all living things. So that's really um, the position that I'm more boldly coming out with now and using to guide the choices that we make in terms of where we put our resources. Mm -hmm. Blair, you get interviewed a lot. You know, and while we're having all these conversations in our, our in our newsrooms, and and you know, reporters are trying to figure out how to cover these stories, uh, you feel tons of questions throughout the year. Um, I wonder if you could walk us through what kind of questions you get, and what kind of questions you wish you'd get to help, you know, push the shift towards solutions. Um, to be honest, I feel pretty good about the questions I get asked. You know, I'm, I'm interviewed by smart people, as you, my colleagues here, are, are testimony to. And what I do, though, is I don't spend too much time on the characterization of the problem. I, then I, I, you know, I, I do then, but what can we do as a, a solution? What can actually be operationalized? And I look at it that if as a result of that interview, X number of thousands of people went away and actually did something they wouldn't have otherwise done based on the direction provided to them, that's pretty good. So, for example, 
in Canada, uh, the number one cost of climate change by far, physical climate manifestation of physical climate risk or extreme weather is flooding, and particularly residential basement flooding. Basements flooding in Canada is the biggest cost to the country of to climate financial costs. And so, but rather than just lay that out there and, and then I can give them some of the numbers associated with that, what we really do is focus on solutions and what the homeowner can do around the outside of their property and in the basement itself over a long weekend for generally less than a couple of hundred dollars and requiring no special expertise, this is something they can actually operationalize. And I find you, you can really pull the audience in because one of the factors that I notice when you give that kind of presentation is we have to make sure that on the air we say, and by the way, these things I've just described, which by the way, I'm not going into them now, these actions that can be embraced at the level of the home, we've got to actually give the website on the air because it's almost like before we're off, people are calling in and saying, where do I, where do I get all this stuff that you're talking about? So what I do find, and this is the point, the good news story in this is that people will act when they know what to do. The problem is very often they're, they're kind of just lost in the landscape. And in giving them direction, it's got to be simple, straightforward, practical in orientation, non-complicated. And, you know, we will, we will write reports that are 50, 60 pages long on flood risk mitigation at the level of the home or new residential community design or for existing communities or fire risk protection for homes, businesses, and communities and forested regions. What can you do? The stuff that is the most popular by far, by a country mile, are the one-page infographics that show you in, in almost instantaneously understandable form. Here's what you should be doing around your home this weekend to protect it from flooding. If you live in a forested region, this is what you should be doing to protect your home from burning down. And boom, uh, people will act. And, and if I could just reach back for a second uh, to what John was talking about early on and a little bit of Laura is, is, is also conveying messaging back when we were talking about biodiversity, putting uh, messaging uh, in a form that people can relate to. For example, uh, you know, everybody knows, you know, or everybody on this call knows that the earth is more or less 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer today than it was a little over 100 years ago or pre-industrial times. Well, I was explaining this to my next door neighbor a little while ago. I said, you know, the earth today is 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than it was over 100 years ago due to, to climate change and the burning of fossil fuels. And she said, uh, well, that sounds nice. And uh, not realizing that the difference in temperature on the planet today, because I went on to explain it, is between what we have today versus an ice age, depending on where you set the stop and start dates, is about five or six degrees Celsius. So when you say to people, you know, we're up 1.2 degrees Celsius over 100 years, which is an incontestably small period of time, uh, due to the burning of fossil fuels, but then compare that to, and by the way, the difference between temperature we have today versus an ice age is five or six degrees Celsius, boom, all of a sudden you've got people, they get it, they go, wow, that sounds really bad. But it, so it's, 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 it's always drawing on these little analogies or comparisons you've got that are simple that anybody can relate to that I, I think that's how you pull people in. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a fair point. And, and we're getting into some of the criticism that climate journalism gets, you know, that it's not inclusive enough, or it doesn't address misinformation effectively, or it doesn't speak clearly to deniers and, and those who are delaying. Um, I wonder, before we turn to audience questions, because we are getting a lot of them, and, and we're getting some really good ones that I'd love to get to. Um, briefly, I, I want to ask all of you, um, how are you strengthening climate reporting? What do you think needs to be done, especially in a post-COVID world? How are you, both in your newsrooms and in your reporting, uh, strengthening the approach uh, to the climate beat? Um, and I wonder, again, Jonathan, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pick you first, but you know, my, my eyesight is just on you. Um, from a global perspective, because you work for The Guardian, um, how's your, uh, what are you hoping to do moving forward? Um, I, th I think, uh, we have to be more confident that uh, we are in the right, um, that, that the changes um, we're climate scientists are advocating and we are amplifying um, uh, is the way forward. And, and I think there's a, there's a, for too long there's been a kind of tentativeness. So I think we need to be more confident, more robust. I know I can really sympathize um, with Linda's comment about, you know, sitting in a in a, in a news conference uh, of colleagues and just thinking, I must say more, I must say more. Um, I, I remember when I came back to the UK after years as a foreign correspondent, everybody was just talking about Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. And I wanted to scream at them, you're missing the big story, you're missing the big story. Uh, I'm glad I didn't, but I kind of did in a, another way. And one of the things I did was, was, was I found out what the readers want. And, and our readers want more climate stories. It's really clear when they donate to The Guardian, the kind of story they donate most for are climate stories and environment stories. So there is, it, there's a need there. And, and I think we respond to that need. And um, sort of following up on what um, I think it was Mike was saying, um, this, this I, I, th I think there's been a big problem with environmental journalism because it, was so long seen as a sort of a white middle class issue. And that was the origins. And for a long time, it was about saving, you know, elephants and lions and polar bears. And, and it all seemed very different, uh, very distant and something that the rich do if they, you know, if they've got time for it. And I think that is a big problem. And uh, the, the whole environment story needs to be reframed as a as a justice issue, as an inequality issue, because there is no greater theft from the poor than than the loss of common lands of, of our of our of our commons. And there is no greater theft from the poor than uh, fresh air and clean water. Mm -hmm. And when you put it in these terms, this is a revolutionary message. It's not a fluffy feel good uh, kind of message. And we need to be framing it in that sort of sense. And then that the last part I would add again, I think, uh, emphasizing what Mike was saying, that we we need enemies, we need uh, targets, we need problems, and we did a huge series on the polluters, um, naming and shaming which companies emit the most, which politicians suck up to those companies or donate receive money from them the most, which PR companies are related to those big fossil fuel interests, and and. And, and then we got all the different deaths of the newspaper to say over a year. And again, the, the question of time, we don't have to hurry. We do have to hurry. It's urgent. 
but we don't have to just think in daily terms. Um, get the whole, get the business desk involved, get the investigations desk involved, get the US, the, the American desk involved, you know, really get everyone involved in naming mm. and shaming. Um, and that was a really important part of finding a solution because we have to identify the problem to find a solution. And I love solution stories, technology, great. And, and it's widening out. There's more on agriculture. There's more on heat pumps and home heating. We're starting to realize the scale of the solution needs to be enormous. Mm -hmm. uh, and this kind of emphasized what, what, what Blair was saying, which is in the UK, at least opinion polls are showing us that, yes, the public gets it now. There's very little doubt in the UK, at least, that humans are causing uh, the climate crisis. What there isn't much public understanding is what needs to be done to solve that problem. The immensity of this, the challenge we face, the almost wartime. Well, it is a wartime level of mobilization that's needed. These solutions have to be enormous. Mm -hmm. um, so just getting across this urgency, the sense of scale, um, and 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 the fact that it's it it it's 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 a environmental justice issue. It's not just a white fluffy issue. And then the last thing I'd say, sorry, is uh, appeal to the emotions. Yes, stick to cold hard facts, but don't let the Donald Trumps and the populists of this world win the battle for emotions. We need to do that too. So whenever I try and whenever I interview a scientist about a new paper, at the end I'll always say all right, you're really happy and proud as a scientist. Now, as a human being, what do you think about your fantastic study? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, that's all great advice. Um, and, and briefly, Laura, do you have anything to add to that? One, one or two things are, are you hoping to build on to strengthen climate reporting moving forward? I want another half an hour of my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I would too, I would too. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I know, as I said before, we're trying to push to have more broad-based coverage um, across what we do. More resources would be great, but Fatima, I just want to take a moment to shout out to all of these other great journalistic organizations that are on with us and, and, and survive partly on subscription and to just urge everybody to, to subscribe to make sure that you can still be getting the great journalism and more of it. Obviously, we're on a different model. We've had our cutbacks, but we're still well-financed compared to a lot of other people. It's a general challenge of journalism these days to be able to afford to do the kind of journalism that needs to be done. And that's even more critically important when it comes to climate coverage. So uh, support it. Support it any way you can, and you'll get more of the great quality journalism you need. I'd love to see more investigative journalism inside the CBC on exactly what Mike was talking about. In Ottawa, we have politicians on a fair bit. I've had uh, Wilkinson on a few times. I guess, well, he'll come on in a different capacity now, but I don't shy away from giving them a real grilling when they come on, and they need that, but it's beyond that kind of reporting that we really need. Mm -hmm. Linda, any other things to add on how we could strengthen climate journalism? Well, I'll just say that, you know, looking at National Observer right now, like, you know, we have a podcast that we just dropped called Race Against Climate Change. Maybe it should have been called Race Against the Climate Emergency or <laughs> Race Against a Hot Planet. But, um, you know, for me, I'm looking at how to tell this story on as many different platforms as possible, how to take complicated stories and, you know, make them really accessible, particularly for young people. You know, so we're really looking at, you know, how do you tell stories better on social media, Instagram, and, you know, just really, um, you know, 
we're ramping up our investigations, we're ramping up our solutions reporting, and, you know, we're taking the whole team to COP26. So, you know, that's the moment we all need to be watching. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the world coming together to try to solve an insolvable problem. So, yeah, and Laura, thank you for that shout out for subscriptions. Um, it's really true. The more that readers will come in and support organizations like Canada's National Observer and the Narwhal, the better climate reporting you will have in Canada. And the Guardian. And the Guardian, of course. <laughs> yes, we all support the Guardian. <laughs> Mike, uh, before I turn over to audience questions, uh, how would you like to strengthen uh, climate journalism moving forward? Um, I, I'd love to see, you know, all the all the media outlets uh, across Canada to 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 show more leadership. Like, yeah, the people on this panel are are all excellent leaders um, um, in in promoting the journalism that that we need. Um, there there needs to be more um, to 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 help guide and and lead uh, journalists to to understand how to tell these stories in, in, a, in a better way. And for me, you know, personally, um, one of the most important functions of journalism, I think, is, is that function of holding power to account. I think it's, it's in, a, in a free democracy, it's essential. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's like, you know, if we want to cover climate change, it's, it's not a difficult thing to interview activists or celebrities, but it is, it is a challenge to press um, decision makers to answer questions they don't want to answer, to uncover secrets of what, what is going on in boardrooms to, to make decisions. And even when they refuse, it's our job to press on, on these issues. So that's something that I think is important. And, you know, at the, at the Narwhal, one other thing that, you know, we, we encourage is this concept of complicating the narrative and, and telling these stories and in encouraging more diversity of voices that also includes the workers in, in some of these industries that are sunsetting um, talking to them hearing their stories um, we we do need to build our relationships with these industries and the people who are directly affected by this as well and on on the front lines in a different way of, of the climate crisis and you know, you could have a situation where you are bringing these voices out where you might be surprised. It doesn't necessarily fit the narrative that the, the oil or the coal worker is, is the villain and someone else is the hero. Um, you might hear the story from the, the oil worker saying, I genuinely care about this. I don't want to be doing this job. I don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. um, so this is also part of some of the things that we want to encourage, we want to foster, and, and we want to see building not only in our organization, but across the media landscape in Canada. Thanks, Mike. That's a lot of good advice uh, from everyone on this panel for us to think about. I have four pages of audience questions, which is amazing and ridiculous at the same time, because I only have 14 minutes left uh, on this conversation. Um, so I'm going to try and turn it into some sort of rapid fire and ask maybe one or two panelists to respond to each of them. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, elected officials, but not enough and their role in, in climate action and climate solutions. Um, I've got a couple questions about this one from David Hawkins who says that, you know, the government climate action plan seems sparse on particulars when it comes to reaching uh, emission reduction targets. Are journalists taking elected officials enough to task on the efficacy of their commitments for 2035 and 2050? Uh, John, you're nodding vigorously. Do you want to take that? 
I was also, I'm, I'm, sorry, my, my, my dog was asking for attention. That was actually <laughs> while I was nodding, but I will try and, and, and answer that question. Um, it, 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 I, definitely. Um, this is a fundamental task that journalists should be doing because when you get the likes of Vladimir Putin uh, making a 2050 net zero target, uh, and recently, you know, Saudi Arabia and others, um, you do one, wonder how how sincere it is. And the the climate action has been held up for so long by um, political leaders just kicking the can down the road, and and we've been that's been going on now for 30 years. Um, the roads, we've run out of road, you know, we need to see uh, concrete action that will start to reduce emissions um, next year, the year after, and, and then benchmark where you're going to be by 2025, and then where you're going to be by 2030. And we need to hold leaders to, to account with that. Yes, at the beginning, give them a, a, a applause for setting a target, but it will be meaningless unless there's um, you know, concrete actions. And it's up to journalists really to push people on that because nobody else is going to do it. And, and actually that's not entirely true because other nations will be pushing for, for concrete actions. And, and that's, mm -hmm. for me, that's the biggest, the biggest uh, objective of, of Glasgow is, is their credibility in all these promises. That's what governments will be testing. Mike, very quickly, I know because your career has spun across a lot of elected officials on, on this file. How can we better hold them accountable when it comes to climate action? Um, not not settling for non-answers, I think, is the biggest thing that I see too often that, um, you know, generally the stories that I see um, by journalists who are not necessarily trained um, or, or familiar with the file they will just repeat or, you know, that they will act as stenographers for, for the politician or the business leader who is not answering a question directly. And, and so I, you know, I, I encourage, you know, within, within the people that I've worked with for, for, for us to press harder. And, and there's always a way to get at that truth and make sure that you aren't as a journalist contributing to, to misinformation um, or the things that, that drive polarization as well. Like when, when these not or mistrust um, disillusionment with, with politics. I mean, all of these things I think are sort of interconnected um, that, that we could do a better job of addressing and, and, and making sure that we are, we are seeing some sort of results or holding people accountable when there aren't results. We've got a question from Emma Jacobs, among others, about COP26, who, who asks, is having a burst of coverage around a single event the right approach if it means that politicians don't go in feeling public pressure to pursue aggressive targets? It almost feels too late for coverage like that. Um, Laura, Linda, you've both mentioned that you're going to COP26. I wonder if you could walk through, um, you know, how you're balancing covering a big event and, and knowing that there's going to be a flurry of climate reporting uh, around it and, and you know, what you do after COP or before COP, for example. Well, oh. Laura, are you, oh, you're on mute, so I'll just Sorry, jump Linda. in. I was just gonna say, Linda and I actually met on Friday and we were having yeah. a conversation about this and, and Linda said yeah. something about what she expects to find at COP and I thought it was quite interesting. Can you remember, remember what I said? You, you, that, that you thought stories were going to be falling from the sky. Yeah. So much to talk about there. Yeah. And also, you know, 
I, I see COP for anybody reporting on the climate as a major educational uplift. And, you know, to Mike's point about people just not knowing enough to push back with, you know, I think it's so important that we, you know, are constantly educating ourselves about these issues. Um, I expect our team to come back really energized and inspired in this coverage, you know, the, the value of having been there to last for a very long time and to infuse our coverage going forward. And I would just say briefly that I welcome um, the world's spot media spotlight on it, even for a short time for the for the opportunity to engage more people and more journalists in the subject. And to perhaps if that doesn't deepen their coverage, it'll make them think again about what can be done with it. Um, as far as we're concerned, it's it is a gateway for even more in-depth coverage, the kind that we do. Um, uh, it, we are only a team of two going this time, but um, we're going to be all over the place. And, and I expect as well that, that we will find far more stories than we can possibly cover over the course of the time there. So I think it's going to be a really good conference, but not necessarily for what's going on behind the closed doors and the negotiations. I can't get in there anyway. I'm going to leave that to the news reporters. And more importantly, to Mike's point, to the investigative reporters who can really dig and what find, find out what's going on behind the scenes. John, I don't know what number cop this is for you, but is the approach this time around different at all? How do you balance, you know, covering a major event versus like persistent coverage on on a on a beat like this? I, I hate big events. Uh, I, I I always feel like I'm in the wrong room. You know, there's there's like fifty events taking place at the wrong t at the same time, and I'm always in the wrong one. Uh, so I find them very stressful. But but I think they're incredibly important. Um, they they. They concentrate the mind, they concentrate attention, a bit like, you know, we in, in the UK we'll have football, we play football all the time, but when the World Cup comes around, everybody watches it all the time and there's this burst of attention and having that on the climate is quite useful. And it's also quite good for sanity in some ways hmm. because although um, it can be so frustrating at the glacial pace of negotiations at the enormous you know, hours of negotiation about the difference between, you know, very or extremely um, in the text. Um, the really positive thing is that's where all the people who care about this are gathered together. And it's, mm. it's really uplifting because this can be a really gloomy beat. You know, it's, if it's just you and the science paper or you seeing melting icebergs, uh, it can get you down. And mm -hmm. the fact that you're surrounded by people who, these are the brilliant people of our age. You know, for me, the climate activists and the scientists, these are the, the Churchills and the Gandhis of our age. They're the ones who are taking on the biggest challenge we have. And I, I go to that place. And I'm just like, wow, that, 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 that person is so brilliant. This activist is so great. What a fantastic idea. And I'm I'm really pumped up with all of that stuff. So th that really helps. And I think it's important for that, even if I'm mm -hmm. always lost. <laughs> Blair, I've got a question for you from Sharon Proxton. Uh, you know, the science is clear around climate change, but there are still folks who question the connection between the increased frequency and severity of the climate crisis. Not everyone is convinced. So what kind of advice do you have on how we, we tackle the discrepancy and how we tackle the deniers uh, and the skeptics? So they sort of also, you know, get on board with climate solutions. Well, uh, let's say when I'm presenting in front of audiences, you know, I do a lot of it. Uh, basically, right up front, we, we spend about 
three to five minutes on what is climate change? You know, what, what drives it? Uh, what, what is a little bit of the science behind it? And one of the points I, I make just to, to knock the deniers out before we even get started, as I say right up front, climate change has been around a long time, long before humans had any you know, real presence on this planet, driven through geological event, driven through volcanic activity or changes in solar irradiance or changes in the earth on its, uh, the wobble, its wobble on its axis. There's lots of things that have caused the climate to change on a, on a geological timescale. However, and this is where you get them, you see, relative to the change we're seeing now over the period of the last 100 years, the only mechanism out of all those mechanisms that explains the change is the burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. It's the only factor that correlates with the escalating uh, temperature on the planet over the time frame we're observing it. And when you put all that right up front, you've kind of won over the deniers because you say, you give them a little bit. You say, by the way, climate change has been around, only it's on a geological timescale, but it's not the mechanism at work now. So you haven't quite put them off. You know what I mean? They, they go, oh, okay, I, I just needed a slight adjustment in my view. Because my goal is to win these people over. I want, the, you know, I want them all singing from the same hymn book before I leave the room. And, uh, and that, that pretty much works. And then sometimes you run into problems with people saying, well, you don't know that this storm, this hurricane, this flood, whatever it is, is attributable to climate change. But I find you can use analogies. For example, I'll say something like, if you had a baseball player who went on steroids, and all of a sudden, this baseball player started to hit five or six times as many home runs. You can't say that any particular home run is due to the steroid, but if he or she is hitting five or six times as many, you pretty much say there's cause and effect going on, and everybody nods their head, and that boom, you've got them. Then you move on. Um, I appreciate that advice. Um, I hope all experts are listening to that advice as well, uh, as well as journalists. Um, I've got like two minutes left before I have to wrap up. So I've got a nice question from Rajpreet Sahota. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, who asks, is there a piece of advice you'd give yourself, uh, you'd give someone just starting their career as a climate reporter? Um, and I thought this would be a nice question to end with. Who wants to go first? <laughs> oh, I'll have to pick. As, Linda, as a non-journalist, <laughs> <laughs> um, the piece of advice I would give is um, take all your best story writing skills that, you know, and your passion, what got you into journalism, and bring that to your climate reporting. And you will move forward quickly. We really need great climate reporters and apply to Canada's National Observer. We're looking for the best <laughs> of Canada, Canadian Laura, reporters. Laura, what's your advice for someone starting? I would just say that, that don't limit yourself to what you think climate reporting is about. Look at, look at it with a very broad brush um, and consider all aspects of it and you'll find a way into climate reporting that, that may provide you um, a platform that, that no one else is really shouting from and help you to start moving ahead with it. So think about it in all of its forms. Um, and um, I'm hoping there'll be more, I don't know, jobs opening up at the CBC for it as well. I, I, I think that it is, it is the subject um, that we all need to be paying more attention to. And so I think there's always going to be a need for more and better journalism. Mm -hmm. John, what advice do you have? Um, uh, I would say, well, you're definitely in the right field. Um, 
news newsrooms are shrinking everywhere but not when it comes to climate it's expanding pretty much uh, everywhere um i would say we are all going to be climate journalists everyone's going to be a climate journalist like 10 or 20 years from now one way or another so yeah. decide what kind of climate journalist you want to be um and if you want to in terms of like finding a, a good prospects, uh, having good prospects, be like a data journalist or a graphics journalist, because there's not enough of those. And this is such mm -hmm. a, like at the Guardian, this is always a bottleneck. We never have enough, like people who can just put the data and the story together in a really beautiful way. Um, that might not be what you're thinking of, but that's definitely an area where I think there are jobs. So, you know, you want to have a job. Think and that. Mike, with, with 30 seconds left, what's yeah, your advice? I, I agree with everyone. I, I think like both the climate and biodiversity crises that we're facing, um, they, they touch upon just about every issue. A lot of people are, are concerned about cost of living. Um, cost of energy. They're concerned about traffic congestion. They're they, you know, there might be some some concerns about immigration issues, um, and and so all of these are interconnected in some ways to to both the climate and biodiversity crises. And if you are interested in this beat, um, look at all stories through these lenses and and try to find the way to tell these stories. Um, and also apply to the narwhal. We're 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 also going to have more uh, jobs available in this area, and and eager to add some of the Canada's most talented journalists. Um, thank you all so much. Thank you, Mike, Blair, Laura, Linda, Jonathan. I'm so grateful you guys took your time out and and spoke to us about this. And and thank you to everyone for joining us and those who submitted questions. I'm sorry if I didn't get to them, but these people are on Twitter. Please find them. Please send them your questions. They might answer after COP26, but they'll get to it. Um, we the CJF has an exciting lineup of programs ahead for the fall JTOC season, and uh, we hope you'll join us this Thursday, October 28th. We resume our regular JTOC schedule with Big Voices, What Does It Take to Be a Columnist in Today's Political Fraught Environment? Anna Maria Tremonti will be in conversation with columnist Daphne Bramham of the Vancouver Sun, Sri Pradakar of the Toronto Star, and Elizabeth Renzetti of the Globe and Mail. On November 4th, Kathleen Kingsbury, the new opinion editor for the New York Times, speaks to Anna Maria about her mandate to reimagine opinion journalism. On November 30th, you can join us for a behind the scenes look at a major Globe and Mail investigation with Tom Cardoso, Grant Robertson, and Chen Wang. These events are all open for registration and can be found on the CJF website. To stay updated on CJF events, please sign up for the newsletter or follow the CJF on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. A reminder, you can also find the videos and podcasts of past talks on the CJF site, including this one. Thank you all so much for watching. We'll see you online and uh, at another event in the future. <laughs>